This is Erica in Edmonton. Shannon in Durham. And Chip in Durham. And welcome to the audio guide to Babylon 5, Episode 8, The War Prayer. Well, hello, folks, and welcome back. Or if it's not a welcome back, if you are just joining us and perhaps Babylon 5 for the very first time, uh, let's just jump right in and start off with some background on the world and events that have led up to this episode, The War Prayer. Uh, Babylon 5 is a grand space station that's part travel layover stop, part travel destination, part bustling community, and part United Nations in space. It is run by the Earth Alliance, but is home to many races, including the Minbari, who value art and poetry, and the Centauri, whose Roman-style empire is sort of in decline. Now, tensions on Earth have been rising with regards to alien-human interaction, but we hadn't really seen this reflected on Babylon 5, at least until the events of the War Prayer. So Delenn's friend, Minbari poet Shal Mayan, is brutally attacked and branded with the mark of the human supremacists. Uh, Lieutenant Commander Ivanova's charming Australian ex, Malcolm Biggs, arrives on the station, and he declares he's moving in and tries to convince her she can be married to her career and still have a relationship with him. Meanwhile, Veer's nephew and his nephew's girlfriend, Winnie Cooper, want to marry for love, against all tradition. Uh, Londo will have none of that, of course, until the young couple are attacked by what turn out to be Malcolm's thugs. Apparently, a guy can change a lot in eight years. Good thing we have our canny commander to pretend to be a bad guy, yet again, so he can nab the baddies. And that's the war prayer. Now, I got the impression, Chip and Shannon, that you were not overly fond of this story, and I would like to hear a little bit about why. Shannon, let's start with you. Um, We're used to Straczynski weaving in a lot of subtleties and a lot of little things. This one felt very comparatively paint by the numbers and in primary colors. It didn't do subtle very well. Um, And I'm not sure how much of that was time restraints, possibly, like if this had had the um if there'd been enough here for a two-parter that uh things would have flowed more smoothly for me or um if this is because fontana had dc fontana the writer had such experience writing for star trek for so many years if it was just a little bit too episodic the fact that everything sort of wrapped up neatly in a bow at the end um where with most of jms's episodes you have some unanswered questions going into the next episode to help build the arc that he wanted to write. Hmm. Chip, what about you? It's a really uneven episode for me. I didn't hate it, but it is my least favorite of the season thus far. And for me, it's not so much the story as the execution in terms of acting and uh, direction. Very uneven from, um, from beginning to end. This is early on. Peter Jurisic is the shoutiest he's ever been on this show. Uh, and while uh, Londo can really pull at your heartstrings, and uh, they both, both Jurassic and Londo, do succeed in that towards the end of the episode, at the beginning, it, it's it's a little kind of cringeworthy. He is shouting for no reason, um, even though he's right in front of uh, Sinclair. He's sort of shouting at Sinclair, and it's not angry, it's bombast. That sort of thing happens a fair bit throughout the episode. Um, there's there's some good things in here. I love the actress who plays Shaw Mayan, and we'll and we'll talk about that. Uh, Malcolm Biggs, uh, Tristan Rogers uh, gives two thirds of a good performance, and then he's then he goes into uh, uh, supervillain territory. I love the sentimentality of it, but 
not entirely as scripted or as performed. Uh, we can t- we can get into more of it. Uh, I I think it's a bit of a I think it's a bit of a miss, but there's some good stuff here. Huh. I have to say, I honestly, I it didn't really register strongly one way or the other for me. I didn't it didn't feel, and even it certainly isn't uh, on the lower end of what we've seen so far. I I rather enjoyed it all the way through, and I think maybe that's because I as we go on and do this podcast longer, I find that we're we're all sort of watching it, kind of looking for our own our own things. Mm-hmm. And my thing tends to be character beats and character development and interactions. And there were a good number of scenes in this that gave us a little bit more information about a character, a character's background, or perhaps some interaction between two of the characters that really sang for me. So I I definitely agree that it was a sort of a paint by the numbers. I like that, Shannon, uh, a paint by the numbers sort of story. And it really kind of was one, two, three, and we're out. But I, I don't mind that. I mean, I, I like Star Trek. When we finished watching it, actually, Steven said that he thought it was rather Star Trek-y. Uh, and then he said that he wasn't surprised considering who wrote it. Do you guys think, how much do you think that played into it? Let's talk a little bit about DC Fontana coming from the Star Wars world to, to be the, only the second writer besides JMS to write for Babylon 5. Well, the Star Trek world, anyway. Um, the she's she's an interesting uh, person. Uh, she was she was originally Gene Roddenberry's secretary, and she wrote a number of important episodes of uh, the original series. Uh, there is nobody else who's more responsible for the Vulcan mythology, Journey to Babel, introducing Spock's parents, and and things like that. She is an awesome writer. Uh, she's done a lot of stuff. She wrote several episodes of Next Generation, wrote an episode of DS9. She's She's got a real sense of um, that kind of science fiction, that kind of ensemble stuff. But she never did anything uh, in those worlds that was continuing. Um, it was, it was you know, story begins, story ends. And Shannon's right. Babylon 5 does tend to keep a, a few threads there for you. I guess it was more, it's it's not the story structure and it's not the character beats, but um, there are things like Malcolm Biggs uh, chewing the scenery when he's been so charming uh, up to this point, chewing the scenery about uh, spouting off his uh, Earth supremacist rhetoric, you know, mm-hmm. bits like that. It's those execution bits that just fall flat for me. Yeah, for, for me... I think Fontana's um, certainly not to be spoilery at all, but she she wrote two other episodes um, that we that we'll see later in season one and early in season two. And the later one in season one for me is a very strong story that I think she does very well and is ha, does a better job of uh, meshing the characters together, of meshing her ideas into the larger story that JMS is telling. I think there's a, probably a little bit of uh, first try. In this one, possibly, mm-hmm. uh, this one actually was produced earlier than Parliament of Dreams and Mind War. So, when you're looking at what the characters, what the actors are doing with their characters, and how much she might have been able to see of their work before actually writing this, it's possible that the only thing she had to go on is the gathering. And if that's the case, mm. then it makes a little more sense what she did. For me, yes, there were a lot of interesting character interactions here and there. But for me, there were also sort of these sudden leaps from one thing to the next. Like, you know, yes, it was about time 
for uh, Veer to start standing up to Londo a little bit, but he does so, so suddenly and so vehemently in this episode that, you know, it struck me aback a little bit like, you know, it's not quite time for this yet, is it? <laughs> so, you know, things like that um, mm-hmm. irritated me here and there. I mean, you know, he does gonna... he, he does great at it. I mean, and it's it's loads of fun. You know, we we demand to see Ambassador Koto, and you know, and and he he <laughs> I I think I, I think in that initial scene with the kids and Londo and Veer and Sinclair, I think Stephen First turns in the best performance in the room. But yeah, I, I do think it's a little bit early. I'm going to jump in and be an apologist for a couple of things that you guys mentioned, <laughs> uh, character-wise, and you know, to each his own. But uh, as far as the Veer thing goes. Like you just said, you know, I want to speak to Ambassador Koto. That's that's hilarious. So he's been playing himself off as the ambassador to try to big himself up to his his family, at least his his nephew. And I think that to me explains why he was suddenly suddenly had enough of a backbone. He you know he'd been kind of embarrassed a little bit about this and had to, to save some face and and maybe try to win back the the love and admiration of a family member that can spur you on to great heights. I I know from experience. So (laughs) I was, I was okay with that. I did, didn't, feel jarring to me at all i was it, it it made me open my eyes a little bit and sit up straight but it, it seemed like a natural time for me and the other thing i wanted to address was londo being shouty you know now that you mention it i guess looking, looking back i can see that but at the time it didn't it didn't ping me at all as, as strange or, or too much or over the top because i was really sort of looking at londo looking at these two children who are clearly in love and i can just i can just picture what is going on inside of his mind thinking about love and the experiences that we've seen londo have with love and it, i think you know he's probably still a little bit you know embittered by the whole thing he, there's somebody he loves who he's not able to be with he's married to three women and it's a great sacrifice uh, and see that which was, was that was something else that i felt was missing that and this again maybe because fontana didn't have the chance to see Born to the Purple, but there, I felt there should have been at least one reference somewhere yeah. to Adira, and there wasn't. That was another thing that made it feel so episodic for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree. I did. I was watching super closely. I was, was kind of like, please let Shannon have been wrong. I want him to say something, but no, of course, Shannon was right. I should have known. <laughs> but anyway, so those are the two. Those are the two things. Let's let's t- talk about some of the other character beats because because again, for me, that was that was what was exciting about this story. The the things that I liked. Uh, I, I liked seeing a little bit of Ivanova's background. Uh, how did you guys feel about that? She made my heart go pitter pat. Not that I have mm-hmm. eyes for any other woman than my wife, who is on this <laughs> podcast with me, but. Um, Claudia Christian, again, turns in a great performance of revealing more facets of herself, the fact that she has a romantic life. Uh, She is. There's an interesting parallel between the Ivanova and Biggs relationship and the Sinclair Sakai relationship, at least Mm -hmm. in the beginning, the way that. Sinclair and uh, Ivanova and Sakai are both are, are they're all career people and they all made decisions to separate from someone they loved so that they could do what they were meant to do. And she's unapologetic for having uh, left him to get the job at the transfer station on Io. 
but she's also completely honest in saying that, you know, she hated she hated to do it and she cried herself to sleep for a few months. And that right there tells you so much more about uh about her. Um and then for the first time we see her uh with her hair with her hair down in uniform and uh Garibaldi <laughs> makes the snarky remark about it being a good look for you and you know she looks like she's about to rip off a part of his anatomy so can we please get on to business uh, she's probably still mad about the coffee thing I mean, for, I mean for once you know he he got the better of her Ivanova usually wins these kinds of arguments yeah. and and instead um you know she has to backtrack with yeah. with speaking of backtracking uh the coffee thing i i found kind of interesting because going back to the gathering we yes. had it was actually uh takashima who was the one that was growing coffee and now it's like they just took that little bit of plot point and plop let's just put it right down ex- on her exact replacement that was almost a little too pat for me uh to to have it be there but but i did like the other callbacks we got to the gathering uh talking about what actually happened to dr kyle and lita mm-hmm. which oddly enough and this is me um pushing my glasses up the bridge of my nose a bit uh this scene was all was actually intended to be part of the parliament of dreams and parliament of dreams ran about three minutes long so they did some adr to uh disguise although not incredibly well the fact that uh, sinclair was speaking different lines than um than he was at first and they just picked up and put those scenes into uh into this episode and it worked almost seamlessly almost seamlessly. i would never have known if you wouldn't have told me that just then i had no idea this is so, this is something problem. that uh, jms mentioned online and then if you go back and you look at the kosh scene and you look at the at, at sinclair's face as he's speaking to kosh a couple of those early uh bits of the interchange it's like what's up tiger lily <laughs> wow speaking of kosh uh he's got quite the uh television scanner screen there that seemed i don't know it kind of just jumped out at me as as out of place um it's very efficient so, i guess i guess maybe and maybe that scene would have played for me better if it had been elsewhere well uh, there's something to be said about th- um, let's let's continue the way you wanted to continue with characters because I want to come back to something about this scene and something else that gets to the nut of why I didn't care for this episode as much as I wanted to. But I don't want to I don't want to derail you from talking about the characters. Let's continue on there. Um, unless uh, Shannon, do you have anything burning to add about Ivanova that we um, haven't touched on? That that section of the story worked best for me. Um, again, like you said, it, characters connecting, characters reconnecting. Um, getting a heck of a lot more of insight into Ivanova and her history and the decisions she's made. So um, I appreciated that the most, pretty much out of the um, out of the whole show. I think um, mm-hmm. another bit of characterization that sort of goes back slightly to the idea of um, the character sort of retreating a little bit um, in the hands of somebody outside of JMS. Um, Jakar is after two episodes of him really growing as a character in leaps and bounds, suddenly he's the bad guy again and agitating and shouty um, and just railing against Sinclair. Um, So much so when um, in the first part, 
when um, he first goes after Sinclair and yells at him about it, and Sinclair tries to answer him and turns around and leaves, and Jakar keeps uh, shouting. Sinclair turns around with a look that just had me like sitting back, going like, "Oh, you've done it now." That that was one little <laughs> bit where I thought Michael O'Hare did a really good job conveying, you know, just how close to his limit he was with uh, with Jakar. But to have to have Jakar be such an agitator again. Um, seemed a little off. Yeah, I actually I took note of that as well. And it didn't it didn't strike me as off so much as it was a little bit surprising, but I just kind of chalked it up to, you know, the character sort of going back and forth, you know, real people, real people don't necessarily do a great big change straight off the bat. So I just kind of thought he'd backslid a little. I, I agree. And he's also being an opportunist. And at this point in the story, one would expect that he's, you know, he he, he was happy to come to the rescue of Sakai in Mind War because there, you know, there's no profit in not helping her and all this stuff. But with the political situation destabilizing on Babylon 5, here's an opportunity for Jakar to put himself forward, to be a rallying point uh, for all of the other uh, league races and things like that. So it makes sort of it makes sense that he would do that. I also do like that in the end, in the end of the episode, Delin and Shalman and he are all standing side by side and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Delenn makes the remark about it taking patience to understand humans. And One learns Jakar, to live with them. Yeah, and Jakar leans in and says, you need a strong constitution, too. So mm-hmm. in that moment, you know, there's a bit more parody, and he's being a little more, um, being even more killed. But it didn't bother me so much that he was being a rabble rouser. I want to talk just a little bit about Delenn. I really, really liked the opening scene uh, with Delenn and Shalmayan. I thought that was, you know, we, we when Lanier arrived on the station, we got to see Delenn sort of be the, put on the mentor face and be a little, have, show a little bit of warmth. But I think this just cranked it up to a whole new level. You see her interacting with someone who she's clearly very fond of and has known for many years. And it's just, it's like there's a glow about her that you didn't see beforehand. We were watching this scene and Stephen just turns to me and says, I ship them (laughs) it's like okay i didn't expect that but i just i thought it was great and i do love that actress i i think she's fantastic um she was julia on santa barbara so i have very fond memories of her from my childhood Mm -hmm. um but i I thought that she played that character very well and um she makes a good minbari i agree i i like that scene very much as well not only for the character development that we got but a little more insight into mimbari culture as you said they 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 very they treasure art and poetry um they also uh their interactions it was kind of interesting how their show of affection even was a bit separate you know humans hug mm-hmm. um centauri we have seen you know hug and hold hands and things like that but for the mimbari these two childhood friends where we would normally expect, you know, them to hug each other or, you know, kiss on each cheek or something, you know, something like that. Um, And instead, you know, their hands are on each other's hearts, holding them away just enough as they bow. That, That seems, that suggests just how formal so much of Mimbari culture is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I totally agree with uh, you both about how great this is for Delenn, especially early on. Um, I like that with both Delenn and Ivanova, we have fully featured, fully rounded characters that are coming out more and more. It is one of the strengths of this episode to see these characters become more believable because they reveal more facets. 
Definitely. And I, I did think that despite the fact that Lando may have been shouty, I feel like he also evolved a notch, maybe a big notch in this story. Uh, and I think my favorite scene was actually the one between him and Shalmayan in the in the med lab where she just I mean, she's a poet, so she can she can see into people and she just cuts right to the heart of him and, and points out, oh, so you're you're turning down the, the wish for these children to 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 find real love simply because you didn't get to do it and the next Mm -hmm. scene we see him in he's that was you know that was a good non-shouty scene of him in in the garden Mm -hmm. where he is just really feeling it and talking about my shoes are too tight i am almost misting up just thinking about him talking about his father and and saying that that's it's a sentiment you know i've forgotten how to dance that it just gets me right in the heart or the hearts as the centauri might say yeah the the scenes themselves each and every scene itself, from in the med lab to in the garden to when Londo and Veer reveal to the kids that, you know, we've we found a traditional way to get around this for you. And, you know, he's just grinning as he as he finally um, tells them what's going to happen. I love the conspiratorial expressions between Veer and Londo at that point. But go on. And the scenes mm-hmm. in, in and of themselves work for me. It's just for me, it goes back to I wish there'd been a little bit more somewhere so that we aren't like doing hopscotch as much as I would rather have seen them walking towards through those. um, If that makes sense, that was part of what to me felt like that Fontana didn't have quite enough time to really make it seamless. I guess I can see your point. Maybe I'm just so used to watching television shows that skip over that kind of stuff that (laughs) that it doesn't bother me as much when we, we don't get the whole, uh, the whole story in there. Um, But I, I, I like the fact that Londo softens towards the end of this story. Um, and that just it's yes. sort of, yeah, it, it, it seems like a natural progression for his character. And, and I, and I appreciate that. Um, the only other person that I wanted to touch on was, of course, our, our little check-in on Sinclair. How did you guys feel about Commander Sinclair in this story? He, he gets to pretend to be a bad guy again. And, and again, he's just not very good at it. <laughs> I... I honestly think, I honestly think somewhere along the line, they decided um, that O'Hare and and JMS or whatever decided that Sinclair, the man, is not a good actor. I've really got to think that there's got to be something to that, because back in Born to the Purple, he's pretending to be a shady guy from the criminal element, and to us, it it rang totally false. Here for me at least, um, when he's got to pretend to be a bigot and pretend to be interested in Malcolm's home guard group that, you know, again, it doesn't fool us, the viewers, you know, it, it did not, it did not sit well. And I'm, I'm beginning to think, you know, in those cases, it's much more deliberate because again, there were places where I thought he did a better job, you know, whether it's just his expression or his body language that showed, um, better choices on the part of the actor. Mm-hmm. The, the one thing I noticed about Sinclair was the, uh, you know, his sort of death wish that we've been seeing over and over again. He actually keeps it in check this time. Garibaldi says, uh-uh, you should not be here. This is not a safe place. And he turns around and goes. He, he leaves the, the front line, which I thought was interesting. On the other hand, he helps, he helps set up the trap at the end. <laughs> I mean, he's got to, frankly, but... Yeah, but I mean, there's happens. nobody else who would do it. But um, Shannon, bless your heart. Uh, I wish I could buy the. I wish I could buy the. Sinclair is not a good actor, uh, but fine. It's my head cannon. <laughs> <laughs> um, the thing that works against it for me is that entire scene. The both both the party scene and the scene afterward in Sinclair's quarters. 
none of the three actors in that room, Claudia Christian, Michael O'Hare, Tristan Rogers, none of them are acquitting themselves very well. And I, it's, it's not just the acting, it's also the directing, and it's also the script. Put those aliens in their place. You know, Malcolm Biggs, throughout this episode, has so much charisma. He, he, he's, he's warm. You can see why Ivanova would have fallen for him. And then he's just put these aliens in their place. You know, if, you know, if he needs a mustache, he needs a mustache so he can twirl it. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, Ivanova is stiffly like, yes. And, um, you know, the only part in any of that Sinclair as a bad guy thing where I believed any of the characters was when Sinclair is talking about the Battle of the Line. And if you pay attention he is not lying one bit during mm-hmm. that, you know, and you, that that victory tasted like ashes and all that stuff. That's that's a point when that's a point when the script and the performance are all going to get working together. But uh, I just I, I know that there's only so much time in the episode uh, bef- before you have to um, get out. But uh, I there's just no subtlety um to that and we, we keep coming back to that but there mm-hmm. it, it's just it just happens too quickly and i guess that's from necessity but it's not a great bit for michael o'hare but he had a lot of help in not doing well there <laughs> i i agree um i mean i understand i understand why ivanova is supposed to be sort of stiff and cold because she doesn't want to be there and she's going through em- emotional turmoil and stuff but yeah it, it did still ring a little false and then at the same time i kind of turned that to my advantage as far as as viewing this is um, this your head cannon coming up this is here's my head cannon yep <laughs> lay it on the table for you okay so for me malcolm was just he has this charisma but i think he's basically sociopathic and he this is just him taking off a mask and you know perhaps putting on another one to try to really win the heart of somebody who has clearly you know Sinclair shown that he really hates aliens you know only, only the only good one is a dead one Eesh, that's rough um but yes it was it was a little over the top however here we do have Ivanova sitting there just stiff as a board even more than usual and she's just monosyllabic whereas the evening before when they were out together um she was laughing and joking and drinking her little alien drink and and having a good time and downing it that- when she said when he says that he's going to come in for the full for he's going to move over here and she downs the drink immediately (laughs) gulp um but he doesn't notice this at all so uh, a fellow who is even remotely in tune with the emotions and reactions and body language of a woman that he cares for would have noticed right away and have kind of asked about it or perhaps taken a step back and and just he wouldn't have barreled I think ahead quite so much so for me that translated to the fact that he never really cared about her in the first place he wasn't actually interested in getting back together with her except as a means to an end of getting close to prominent and powerful people who could help his cause so at the end of the the episode that was just a a little bit more for me to just say oh poor Ivanova like that's just he (laughs) he really truly didn't care he just he he just played her. I mean, yeah, exactly. I, I can I can I can see that. Um, I, I can I can definitely see that a, a person with that kind of uh, sensitivity uh, would not have risen to a high ranking position in a uh, supremacist organization. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's fair. Um, I would like to mention, ordinarily, as Doctor Who fans, as 
as Babylon 5 fans, you know, we train ourselves to look past production values. But this is an episode that is really painful to me from a production standpoint. From Danica McKellar's really bad uh, skullcap uh, makeup on in that last scene where she's in med lab with her beloved and she turns to look at him and you could see the stretches and the folds oh, really? and the skullcap. Yeah, totally didn't notice that. Not at all. <laughs> um, to the goofy comedy music bits. Yes, as, that uh, one as, got as me. Veer, as Veer takes that second look at the um, triptych photo, and uh, all and yeah, it goes doodle doodle doodle. Yes, <laughs> and like, there are wait. several moments like that. Um, and to primary colors that to, that that lends itself to the to the idea that this is not a subtle episode. Um, and also to the uh, fight scenes and the stalking scenes. Um, none of the none of those scenes, the with uh, Shalmyan and Shadows at the beginning, uh, with the uh, worker getting jumped by the Drazi, to the final uh, scene, which I I still you know I, I I looked at it closely and I still didn't see how really Sinclair and Ivanova would have gotten the drop on these four. Um, these four guys in black like camouflage suits without having get, gotten killed you know they were really darn lucky mm-hmm. garibaldi didn't do anything except show up at the end you know right. it's the direction of this episode and some of the production values especially god help me the music mm-hmm. um and all, but also even as far as the performance uh when malcolm and ivanova and um sinclair are plotting or whatever it's just it, this feels like a cheaply done episode to me in a way that none of the previous ones did. Even down to the sort of the casting of the some of the extras because we have another really terrible actor, Flunky again, the guy who they arrest, uh, who they think maybe had stabbed Shawn but turns out not to be him. His was, I think, the worst performance that we have seen so far. It was that for me anyway. It was I just thought it was terrible. I don't know if you guys agree. Yeah, I, I would agree that he wasn't that good. Um, but yeah, yeah, he he was he was he was way too snarly. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that as you've mentioned before, that the writing also sort of plays into that because his lines are all you know us versus them type lines. You know, here they come taking our jobs, that sort of thing. And they were really very basic slogan esque kind of things, which maybe that makes sense because that's the kind of stuff that has been spewed at him. So he's just spitting it back out. But it it just didn't uh, ring well for me. I, I, from a production perspective, though, I will give them um, an okay uh, uh, marks on the blacklight camouflage itself. I thought Mm -hmm. that was a pretty good effect. Yeah. So I will give them one in the uh, in the plus column. But as far as everything else goes, I'm completely on the same page as far as the lack of subtlety. Even okay when when Ivanova throws the rose away into the trash bin, I I liked that because it was maybe because it wasn't subtle at all. It was just absolutely just so stereotypical. Here's the rose in the garbage, uh, and I think it it made me laugh and made me cry at the same time. So I was okay <laughs> with it. But it 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 definitely follows suit with the rest. Of the... they, they could have at least put some more garbage in the can. It's, it's, yeah, it's, uh, yes. it's, it's just <laughs> that would have helped. Little, little bits like that help sell help help sell an episode. And there were almost none of those little bits. Now the director of this is Richard Compton, who also directed, oddly enough, The Gathering, Midnight oh. on the Fire Line, okay. 
infection, and a couple of others. Uh, he he goes off beyond the rim sometimes a- sometime after this first season, but he was uh, he was an occasional director as well as a co-producer uh, for this season. But you know, I like Midnight on the Firing Line. I think that it's a well-directed episode. Mm-hmm. In, in, infection is okay in spots, not so much. The Gathering, JMS didn't care for it so much that he actually re-edited it himself. Uh, for t- t- I place the blame for a lot of the faults of this episode on the director, I think. Yeah, and you know, perhaps Midnight on the Firing Line being the first proper episode and after The Gathering went, as you said, if JMS wasn't didn't like it so much, perhaps JMS had more of an eye over his shoulder throughout the uh, creation of that one so that it came out a little bit better on the first try. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, do you guys have anything else that you want to touch on? We've been going for a while here uh, before we jump into spoiler space and talk about some some secret stuff. I think I wish that it's I wish that this were a stronger episode. Um, full disclosure, I'm you know, this episode's politics are on its sleeve and I share those politics. Um, mm-hmm. The episode is titled after uh, Mark Twain's short story, The War Prayer, which is. Not at all subtle itself, and uh, if y'all don't object, since it's public domain and all that, I'll include a reading of that short story at the end of this podcast. Um, It's a, it's, and it's a powerful, it's a powerful story, but it, you know, it is uncompromising and unsubtle. And this episode is uncompromising and unsubtle. Uh, I just think that televised drama needs to be a little more. Subtle and compromising, I guess, while still getting the political message across that you want. I can absolutely see where you're coming from. And maybe I'm just cutting Babylon 5 too much slack at this point, uh, you know, it feeling very episodic. And it, it's it's a little more episodic in this first season. Um, but yeah. So what I'm interested to hear what our listeners think, if you haven't already chimed in on the conversation. Uh, before we jump into spoiler space, I just want to remind you all to come and find us and take part in the conversation uh, at b5audioguide.com. We have uh, comment threads set up so that you can chat about this either with or without spoilers, whatever is your preference. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and Tumblr at b5audioguide, and we would love to hear from you. It's it's great to, to sort of keep that conversation going throughout the Babylon 5 fan community. Um, But before we go, I also want to remind you guys of your homework for next time. Next time we will be watching And the Sky Full of Stars. So watch that and be ready for when we are back next time. And now it's time to jump to spoiler space. And we are back, back in spoiler space. So, um, does anybody have any place that they want to start specifically, um, as far as the, uh, the the whole rest of the show goes? I know that there's a lot of sort of, I wouldn't say necessarily that the seeds are planted about the pro-Earth movement, because we had little seeds of that before. I would say we've got ourselves a seedling going on right now. This- Do you guys think this is a good seedling, or it's, it's too much? Well, it certainly helps define more clearly um, just what the stance is for this pro-Earth group, that it's basically, you know, same song, new, very expanded verse, where it used to be uh, the Irish or the Italians or, you know, whoever was moving in um, and, you know, or um, people of different races, all of these things you know, now apparently there's a new focus that it's Earth against all of these other aliens. Um, it, it provides a very strong foundation for what will become uh, that part of the arc. 
Yeah, I, I like thinking, and this is something that Babylon 5 does that you never really thought about in a lot of other shows, is the notion, you know, uh, we heard at the end of Infection, Franklin and Ivanova are talking about how things are back home and tensions. Um, and even before that, the election campaign uh, in Midnight on the Firing Line, uh, the thought that there's a growing alien community on Earth, you know, think think Chinatown. And, and things like that. Shamayan's getting ready to her next stop after uh, Babylon Five is going to be Earth to do poetry readings and things like that. The fact that Earth in just a few hundred, you know, maybe just a hundred years—I forget ex- exactly how long it had been since the Centauri had um, encountered them—but Earth is kicking and screaming almost into this new. Uh, interstellar uh, multiculturalism kind of thing and it's perfectly believable that you would have uh extremist groups like that uh and we do see that that sort of xenophobia is at the root of what president clark's going to wind up doing uh but it is slathered on pretty as shannon says primary colors this time just to let us know that uh you know that this isn't just a happy little Star Trek Federation here. Yeah, I do. I agree that the uh, <laughs> that the story is a little bit in your face, um, but I guess that didn't bother me too much because I, again, coming at it from the other side and having seen the middle before I saw mm-hmm. the beginning, uh, this just it strikes me as just a very large building block toward the thing that I know is going to exist already. So I, it didn't it didn't surprise me at all. So I just wonder how new viewers. Would, would react to it uh, being yeah. such a blatant thing. I, I see a bit of a parallel between the Home Guard in this episode and the Night Watch uh, after uh, Babylon 5 secedes, uh, mm-hmm. when all of a sudden um, the Night Watch has, come, has switched from being these folks that could be your neighbor to, the, to after the secession, um, these really snarly, nasty, scarred big guys who... Um, there are two different kinds of supremacist villains in Babylon 5. They're the conniving ones, and then there are the guys that might as well have sheets and hoods. And that's what we get in the Home Guard this time around. The other thing that, that struck out, stuck out to me as far as looking at the entire series as a whole uh, is just to jump back to the character side stuff and Londo. Uh, he he really softens up at the end of this episode and it just warms my heart and makes me so happy. And then at the same time, then there's like this little knife poking at my heart because I know that things are just going to turn around and go so bad for him. So I feel like this this episode was really important to set him up for his eventual fall. Um, do you guys feel like they went too far with that? or is it evening it out okay for you? Not too far necessarily. What struck me a bit more about him is um, the scene again where he, you know, talks about, you know, his father's story of, you know, my shoes are too tight and I have forgotten how to dance. And I was just sort of shaking my head going like, um, yeah, you're not going to be dancing for a very long time, dude. Um, (laughs) So for, for me, there was, it emphasized the pain his character is going to go through. He's getting a taste of it now. Yeah, but at the end of this episode, it's actually kind of you. You could actually see things just sort of moving off into a happier, greater future for everybody. You know, yes. um, Londo's done a good thing, and he and he's brought this couple together, and he's overcome his resistance and all that sort of stuff. You know, he's 
you know, he's done a good thing. Delin and Jakar are being chatty in the end. You know, J- Jakar appears satisfied with how uh, things with how things went, how Sinclair was able to resolve the issue and all that, you know. And then, you know, a few episodes from now, Morden's going to show up and everything's going to go to hell. Um, if yeah. Morden had just stayed away. <laughs> We'd have no show. Yeah, we True. have no show. But, uh, <laughs> but Londa would be so happy. Exactly. Maybe it would be worth it. <laughs> exactly. You could see that uh, you could see that if Londo had not been given the opportunity to really screw up, um he, maybe things <laughs> maybe things would have just turned out so much better for him because there is good within him, if you'll excuse the Star Wars line. Um <laughs> it's just those three wives would drive anybody to distraction. Mm. <laughs> um, it, that, that, that's kind of another bit of continuity, continuity that um, I appreciated. The, there will be the episode down the line where we get to meet all three of his wives. And the interactions will show that, yeah, he, he probably did need to stay 75 Centauri light years away from them. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Pestilence, famine, and death. That leaves, of course, war. Yeah. That's Londo. All for it. Oh, I hadn't even caught that before, Chip. That's awesome. <laughs> and sad. You know, I think the fact that this episode wrapped up so prettily, uh, you know, and that was one of the things actually that Stephen pointed to as being Star Trek-y. It was just the fact that it felt like there was sort of a moral to it. People learned things by the end. And I think the fact that it ends on such a, a happy high for me is a really good thing because what comes later uh, becomes an even sharper and deeper fall and sort of cuts cuts even more so i like that exactly exactly Uh, i feel like shannon and i have been awfully harsh on this episode but it's still it's still babylon 5 and there's far worse babylon 5 out there than the war prayer i'm I'm gonna say that i am a fan of this one maybe not a great big fan but uh i will say a fan Uh, and really like i said most of that has to do with the story and the characters and and i do appreciate the laying the groundwork for what comes later. Is there anything else that you guys noticed as far as uh, forward-looking sorts of touches? A couple of little things for me. Um, Of course, there's the fact that the poet Mayan, uh, when asked to describe her assailant, she just says it was a shadow, and they try to press her about it. It was a shadow. And, you know, you can see that possibly maybe JMS dropped that in there as uh, a prelude for what's to come. Maybe another piece that, again, maybe JMS was doing something. Maybe this is just happy coincidence. But when she points out to Londo in the med lab that, you know, of all these races, you know, that that she's visited in her travels and in writing her poetry, every single one of them, love is so important. And we have it's been made very clear in this episode up to now with Londo yelling at the kids that Love is not part of what drives the Centauri. So it's yet again another divider between the the sides that are going to develop with the Centauri caught on the wrong side, um, like we've seen in other hints here and there. Those those two sort of little things uh, spoke to me. Well, the one last thing that I wanted to say before we wrap things up completely is just I giggle every time the show starts because uh, during the opening credits, you know, at the end, it's the name of the place is Babylon 5. And Stephen just he shakes his head. He's like, I just can't get over this, the name of the place. And every time I want to say, oh, they're going to stop that. It's just going to be the place and you're going to love it and you're going to be really happy that they changed it. But I don't want to ruin the surprise for him. So, yeah, it's it's one of those things we're doing this so slowly and uh, you know it's taking a lot of time i 
I'm sure some of these things are going to get ruined for him. We go to science fiction conventions. People know things. People talk. But I kind of hope that that one manages to sneak up on him because I just giggle about it every time. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, but anyway, I guess we have gone on long enough about the war prayer. And I think it's uh, it's been at least as good a time talking to you guys as it was watching the show. So thank you very much for for making this fun. This, um, is, this is something that I look forward to every two weeks, Erica. Oh, hooray. Yes. That makes me happy. Agreed. Yay. Well, I guess, anyway, we still have to close things out. Time to say goodbye. So for now, this is Erica in Edmonton. Shannon in Durham. And Chip in Durham. And you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. The title of this episode of Babylon 5 comes from the Mark Twain short story of the same name, left unpublished at his death in 1910. It wasn't released to the public until 1923. This is The War Prayer by Mark Twain. It was a time of great and exalting excitement. The country was up in arms, the war was on, in every breast burned the holy fire of patriotism. The drums were beating, the bands playing, the toy pistols popping, the bunched firecrackers hissing and spluttering. On every hand and far down the receding and fading spread of roofs and balconies, a fluttering wilderness of flags flashed in the sun. Daily, the young volunteers marched down the wide avenue, gay and fine in their new uniforms, the proud fathers and mothers and sisters and sweethearts cheering them with voices choked with happy emotion as they swung by. Nightly, the packed mass meetings listened, panting, to patriot oratory which stirred the deepest deeps of their hearts, and which they interrupted at briefest intervals with cyclones of applause, the tears running down their cheeks the while. In the churches, the pastors preached devotion to flag and country, and invoked the God of battles, beseeching his aid in our good cause, in outpourings of fervid eloquence which moved every listener. It was indeed a glad and gracious time and the half-dozen rash spirits that ventured to disapprove of the war and cast a doubt upon its righteousness straightway got such a stern and angry warning that for their personal safety's sake, they quickly shrank out of sight and offended no more in that way. Sunday morning came. Next day the battalions would leave for the front. The church was filled. The volunteers were there, their young faces alight with martial dreams. Visions of the stern advance, the gathering momentum, the rushing charge, the flashing sabers, the flight of the foe, the tumult, the enveloping smoke, the fierce pursuit, the surrender. Then, home from the war, bronzed heroes welcomed, adored, submerged in golden seas of glory. With the volunteers sat their dear ones, proud and happy and envied by the neighbors and friends who had no sons and brothers to send forth to the field of honor, there to win for the flag, or failing, die the noblest of noble deaths. The service proceeded. A war chapter from the Old Testament was read. The first prayer was said. It was followed by an organ burst that shook the building, and with one impulse the house rose with glowing eyes and beating hearts and poured out that tremendous invocation. God the all-terrible, thou who ordainest, thunder thy clarion and lightning thy sword. Then came the long prayer. 
None could remember the like of it for passionate pleading and moving and beautiful language. The burden of its supplication was that an ever-merciful and benignant father of us all would watch over our noble young soldiers and aid, comfort, and encourage them in their patriotic work. Bless them, shield them in the day of battle and the hour of peril, bear them in his mighty hand, make them strong and confident, invincible in the bloody onset, help them to crush the foe, grant to them and their flag and country imperishable honor and glory. An aged stranger entered and moved with slow and noiseless step up the main aisle, his eyes fixed upon the minister, his long body clothed in a robe that reached to his feet his head bare, his white hair descending in a frothy cataract to his shoulders, his seamy face unnaturally pale, pale even to ghastliness. With all eyes following him and wondering, he made his silent way. Without pausing, he ascended to the preacher's side and stood there, waiting. With shut lids, the preacher, unconscious of his presence, continued with his moving prayer, and at last finished it with the words, uttered in fervent appeal, Bless our arms, grant us the victory, O Lord our God, Father and Protector of our land and flag. The stranger touched his arm, motioned him to step aside, which the startled minister did, and took his place. During some moments he surveyed the spellbound audience with solemn eyes, in which burned an uncanny light. Then, in a deep voice, he said, I come from the throne, bearing a message from Almighty God. The words smote the house with a shock. If the stranger perceived it, he gave no attention. He has heard the prayer of his servant, your shepherd, and will grant it if such shall be your desire, after I, his messenger, shall have explained to you its import, that is to say, its full import. For it is like unto many of the prayers of men, and that it asks for more than he who utters it is aware of, except he pause and think. God's servant in yours has prayed his prayer. Has he paused and taken thought? Is it one prayer? No, it is two, one uttered, the other not. Both have reached the ear of him who heareth all supplications, the spoken and the unspoken. Ponder this, keep it in mind. If you would beseech a blessing upon yourself, beware, lest without intent you invoke a curse upon a neighbor at the same time. If you pray for the blessing of rain upon your crop which needs it, by that act you are possibly praying for a curse upon some neighbor's crop which may not need rain and can be injured by it. You have heard your servant's prayer, the uttered part of it. I am commissioned of God to put into words the other part of it, that part which the pastor, and also you in your hearts, fervently prayed silently. And ignorantly and unthinkingly, God grant that it was so. You heard these words, Grant us the victory, O Lord our God. That is sufficient. The whole of the uttered prayer is compact into those pregnant words. Elaborations were not necessary. When you have prayed for victory, you have prayed for many unmentioned results which follow victory, must follow it, cannot help but follow it. Upon the listening spirit of God fell also the unspoken part of the prayer. He commandeth me to put it into words. Listen. O Lord our Father, our young patriots, idols of our hearts, go forth to battle. Be thou near them. 
with them in spirit, we also go forth from the sweet peace of our beloved firesides to smite the foe. O Lord our God, help us to tear their soldiers to bloody shreds with our shells. Help us to cover their smiling fields with the pale forms of their patriot dead. Help us to drown the thunder of the guns with the shrieks of their wounded, writhing in pain. Help us to lay waste their humble homes with a hurricane of fire. Help us to wring the hearts of their unoffending widows with unavailing grief. Help us to turn them out roofless with little children to wander unfriended the wastes of their desolated land in rags and hunger and thirst, sports of the sun flames of summer and the icy winds of winter, broken in spirit, worn with travail, imploring thee for the refuge of the grave and denied it. For our sakes who adore thee, Lord, blast their hopes, blight their lives, protract their bitter pilgrimage, make heavy their steps, water their way with their tears, stain the white snow with the blood of their wounded feet. We ask it in the spirit of love, of him who is the source of love, and who is the ever-faithful refuge and friend of all that are sore beset, and seek his aid with humble and contrite hearts. Amen. Ye have prayed it. If ye still desire it, speak. The messenger of the Most High waits. It was believed afterward that the man was a lunatic because there was no sense in what he said.